Here's a question for you guys. How would you feel if you learned that someone knew every intimate detail about you? I mean, everything. How'd that make you feel? What you love? What you fear? Secrets that you've never told anyone before. How would that make you feel? I, I would be willing to bet that every single one of us would feel pretty uneasy about this. Right? It would make us feel uncomfortable and, and really for two primary reasons. One, we know ourselves. We know our hearts. We know that we do, we feel like we have things to hide. We know the wickedness in our hearts. We know our sin. And so we feel like we've got some things to hide. But secondly, we also know other people's sin. We know the wickedness in other people's hearts. And so we are fearful, perhaps, that what it is that they find out about us, they will use, they will weaponize against us, they will use for harm, not our good. This idea makes us feel uneasy. But the good news, take a deep breath, good news, no one knows every single thing about you in this way. Some people might know you really well. Some people might know me really well, but no one can claim to know every intimate detail about you. Uh, maybe I should clarify. No, no other person knows every intimate detail about you. But there is still one who knows everything about us, that being God himself. In fact, David, Israel's king at the time, writes Psalm 139 with this idea in mind that God knows every single thing about him. And it doesn't scare him, actually. It leads him to worship, which has given us Psalm 139. And so as we continue in our psalm series, that's where we're gonna be this morning. So if you've not turned there, please join me in Psalm 139. And we're gonna look at this psalm in four different segments. This is how we're gonna kind of attack the morning. The first three segments consist of David expressing worship toward God because of his knowledge, because of his presence, and because of his power. And while that last segment is a declaration of his allegiance to God himself. And what we see, what we learned this morning, it's either going to scare us or it's gonna bring us great comfort. And our knowledge of God our relationship with him will largely determine which of those that we fall under. So let's look, Psalm 139, beginning in verse one. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So right off the bat, David acknowledges that God has searched him and known him. This isn't some distant future action. And though God continues to know and continues to examine David presently, it didn't only recently begin God has always known every detail about him. He is all-knowing. He goes on to describe the extent of God's knowledge of him in the verses that follow using what's called mirrorism. 
Merism is a figure of speech that maybe we don't know it's called merism, but we use this type of language all the time. It's, it's really, we use um, polar opposite terms to convey something in its entirety. So for example, when we inevitably lose our phone or TV remote at home and we say, ah, where is this thing? I have searched high and low, far and wide, I can't find this thing. Essentially what we're saying is, I can't find this anywhere. That's what merism is. It's a figure of speech. And David is using this here in a couple, the first couple verses here, two and three in particular. I mean, look at what he says. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. He says, you, you, you know my path. In other words, you know my going you know when I'm going somewhere, but you also know when I lie down, when I'm stationary and I'm just relaxing. You know both of these things. What David is saying is, you know everything about me, right? Again, you know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you know when I'm going, you know when I'm stationary and just staying put. You know everything in between, but it's not just the movements that God knows about David. It's also his thoughts and his ways. The end of verse two, he says, you discern my thoughts from afar. God, you know my thoughts. End of verse three, you are acquainted with all of my ways. God, you know all of my ways too. So not only is it the movement that God knows about David, but he, he knows all of his ways and his thoughts, which is actually what he's conveying in verse four. He says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. I mean, I don't know that we um, think about this very often, but when we speak, contrary to what other people may claim about us or we may claim about ourselves, uh, words do not just fall out of our mouths. In fact, the words that we speak, the words that leave our lips, they begin as a thought. And even before that, those thoughts stem from what's in our heart. David is saying, God, before I even speak my words, you know the thought that, that brings that forth. You know what's in my heart. Before words even leave my mouth, you know all of this about me. God not only knows everything about David, but he's also sovereign over his circumstances. That's why in verse five he says, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. It's this idea of, God, you envelop me. You, you fully surround me, but not in a way that's suppressive or, or oppressive. Job says something very similar in, in, in 19.8. He says, he, being God, has walled up my way that I cannot pass. David is saying, God, not only do you know everything about me, but you are also sovereign over my circumstances. For David, knowing all this about God, what does it lead him to do? to cower, to fear, to run away? No, actually, it leads him to worship. It leads him to a place of awe. That's the expression that he's giving in verse six. He says, such knowledge, it's too wonderful for me. I cannot comprehend this. He says, it is, it is high. I cannot attain it. It's like this, this idea that something is, is high up on a shelf and we can't reach. Then we jump and we're still so far away. I cannot attain this, God. You and you alone, this is, I cannot embody what describes you. You are holy, you are perfect, you are set apart. 
Paul similarly says something in Romans eleven thirty three. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. How indescribable, how we lack understanding of his ways. For Paul and for David here, God's all-knowingness leads them to awe and worship. But here's the deal. The same knowledge that God has about David, he has about us. When, when, when David says, God, you know when I sit down and, and when I rise up, that's true of us. God knows when you sat your butt in the pew today. God knows when you awoke this morning. God knows when you will lie your head down to sleep tonight. God knows all of these things. He knows when we go. He knows where we're going. And he knows when we lie down and we settle. He knows all of this. He knows our thoughts. Before when we speak, he knows the very thoughts that brought forth those words. And even before that, he knows our hearts that has led us to speak the way that we speak. Now here's the question. As we hear that, what does that incite in us, in you? Right? Does, it, does it lead you to the same place as David? Does it lead you to a place of, of worship, of comfort, of peace? Or does it scare you? Right? Does it make you feel a little bit nervous, maybe a little bit uncomfortable? Whatever it does in you, do not ignore that feeling and move on because it's telling us something. There, there's a barometer. It's serving as a barometer for us. But hang on to that thought because there's more. David goes on in verse seven. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For some, knowing that God knows everything about us, it might lead us to, to want to run and hide from him. But David addresses this idea here, and he says, for himself, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? It's a rhetorical question. The implied answer is nowhere. God, there's nowhere that I can run that, that you will not find me. He uses another merism in verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths of Sheol, right, place of the grave, you're there too. You're everywhere in between. He says, if I take on the wings of the morning, if I, if I with light speed go to the ends of the earth and try to hide from you, well, there you are too. He, he says, there's nowhere that I can run. He's simply stating, God, you are ever present. There is nowhere that I can go that you are not. There's nowhere that I could hide that you could not find me. David could be a 12-time world champion hide-and-seeker. 12 times, that's a, big, like, that's a big deal. And guess what? The moment Dave, David would go to hide, God would say, found you. 
But once again, this doesn't scare David, this idea. Though he knows there's nowhere he could hide from God, he knows that God isn't chasing him down to get him. It's not to do him harm. It's actually the opposite. Again, in verse nine, David's saying, I could go to the far reaches of the earth. I could run, I could run so fast and so far and you, are, you will pursue me. You will meet me there, but it's not to get me because he says in verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's pursuit of us, God's pursuit of David. David says, I know it's not because you're, you're trying to seek harm from me. It's because you're there to lead me, to preserve me, to protect me in your right hand. And this is actually what prompts him to talk about the darkness that surrounds him in verses 11 and 12. I would remind you that, that David, in the midst of many of the Psalms that he wrote, he's, he's being pursued, his life is being pursued by enemies, those who would seek to do him harm in some cases to actually kill him and, and his circumstances are not good and he describes this darkness. He, he says, surely the darkness shall cover me. Surely I shall experience evil and, and, and incredibly difficult circumstances. The light about me be night where it feels like there's no hope. But he says, though my enemies pursue me, though I have difficult circumstances surrounding me, God, your presence is still there. Even the darkness is not dark to you. God, you are not afraid of the dark. This doesn't scare you. This evil, this, these things that are pursuing me, this doesn't, this doesn't scare you. And in fact, this darkness, it does not change you. God is the light. The darkness is the sin, the evil, the difficult circumstances. It's not that God is changed by the darkness and the circumstances. In fact, it's the other way around. It's that the presence of God being the light changes the circumstances. David acknowledges that, acknowledges that in verse 12. The darkness, it surrounds David and it seeks to strike him and oppress him, but it, it doesn't hide or separate him from God. Daniel 2.22 says, he, being God, reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. Romans 8.35, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He's essentially saying, shall the darkness, right? The evil, the difficult things, shall they separate us? And he says, no. In fact, he goes on to say, we are more than conquerors, those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing shall separate us from him, not even the dark. And just as there is nowhere David can run or hide from God, of course, there's nowhere that we can run or hide from God. And we do try. We do try. You know, sometimes there is a physical running that takes place. It often comes in the form of maybe we feel like God is, is calling us to something here and we say, nope, if I just remove myself from the situation, maybe I do, maybe it does cause me to move somewhere else. Maybe it just causes me to, I'm gonna remove myself from the situation. So physically we do run at times. Well, that doesn't work. I actually had a, um, some people come up to me after the first hour and say, this sounds a lot like Jonah. And I was like, actually, Jonah's the perfect example. Physically running from God doesn't work. You can run anywhere and he's gonna find you. 
But running from God, it's not always physical. Our running from God, it's not always physical in nature. It's not always tied to a physical location. Sometimes it's a figurative running. And it's tied to a pattern of behavior. Maybe it's a mindset. Maybe it's avoiding confession. Maybe it's recognizing I've got sin, but I'm not going to bring that before the Lord. I'm going to avoid this. Maybe it's being unwilling to accept the consequences for our sin in this life. I'm running. I'm going to remove myself from this. Or maybe, again, it's something where I know that God's calling me to this thing. I know that this is what I need to do, but man, I'm just not feeling this. So I'm gonna turn my, I'm gonna, I'm gonna distract myself willingly, intentionally so that I don't have to even think about this. Our running happens figuratively as well and I can tell you I have tried this. I've done this before. Physical running, that's exhausting. Spiritually running, how much more exhausting is that? And it's not worth it. On the other side of this, there's no amount of darkness or difficult circumstances that can separate us from him. He doesn't leave us in the midst of that alone. But just as David writes in Psalm 23, we heard that recently in the valley of the shadow of death, it's not that God says, man, good luck. No, he is present there with David as he writes this. God is present and he's seeking to lead, he's seeking to guide, he's seeking to bring comfort So God is ever present. Now, unfortunately, this has been used as a scare tactic by some. If you've ever maybe driven by some churches that have some signs out front, or maybe you've seen this elsewhere, it's like, God is always watching. Well, yes, that is factually correct. God is always watching. But knowing this brought David comfort and peace. Does it do the same for you? Does knowing that God is everywhere we go, that there's nowhere to run, does that make us feel at ease? Or does it make us feel uncomfortable? Once again, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, don't ignore that feeling. It's telling us something. But keep hanging on to that thought. David continues his worship in verse 13. He says, For you formed my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. I'm going to pause there for a moment. The word for at the start of verse 13 connects this thought with what he has previously said. How does David know God knows everything about him, that he's ever present with him, and now that God is all powerful? He says, for or because, God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He says that he was intricately woven, right? Same idea as the knitting together in the depths of the earth. That's a poetic way of saying in the womb. And so twice in just a few verses, he says, I recognize God, your power, because you have made me. 
You have intentionally formed me. In Psalm 19, David actually acknowledges God as the creator of the universe. He says, the heavens declare your handiwork, right? He says, you're the creator of the universe. And so in that sense, he's acknowledging God is all-powerful, right? Like big, he is all-powerful, creating the universe. But here he recognizes that that power has been made personal. God, you've created the universe and everything in it. And you also created little old me. Personally, intimately, intricately, weaving me together. Knitting, I'm not a knitter. I'm not a knitter. I don't. But I know that it takes intentionality. It takes patience. It takes every strand. It's intentional. And this personal, intimate language, it, it matches what David has said so far in the midst of this psalm to this point. Job acknowledges the same idea. Job 10, 11, he says, God, you clothe me with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. It's this fact that leads David to praise in verse 14. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now to be clear, David here is not being narcissistic. It could be tempting to read this and saying, God, I see myself and I am wonderful. I am perfect. It's almost, we picture David standing in the mirror and saying, ha, I praise you, God, for what you have made. (laughs) Wonderful are your works. But that's not what David's doing. In fact, David, David is praising God for making him, but the focus is not, or the focus is on God rather as the personal creator, not as, not him as the created. The focus is on the Lord and the work and the power that he displays. But what's fascinating is what he says in verse 16. I love this. David knows that God creating him, it didn't start with being formed in the womb but his power is displayed and made personal even before that. Look again at what he says. He says, God, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Similarly, when God called the prophet Jeremiah, first thing he says to him is, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, right? Before I formed you, I knew you. Both David and Jeremiah understand that before they had any physical body even beginning to form in the womb, before there were even thoughts in their parents' heads, God saw each as a person with numbered days. What David says here, what we are able to glean from this, it helps us answer the debate that rages today. When does life begin? Right, scientifically, we would say that life begins at conception. Right, when when sperm and egg come together, that is the beginning of that process, that beginning of, of God knitting a life together in the womb. So scientifically, we would say that life begins at conception just by simply observing what David writes here. 
But marrying faith with what we know in science, we would say that's not just a clump of cells, but a person with numbered days, a person that God knows by name. That's not a clump of cells, that's David that is being described here. That's Jeremiah. That's Dan. That's you. And for the estimated 70 plus million lives taken by abortion each day, or each year, I should say, globally, God sees them as a person with numbered days, and he knows them by name too. And I have to say that these verses, David doesn't have an agenda with this. David is simply acknowledging what he knows to be true about God and what he knows to be true about himself. Therefore, what he knows to be true about all life. And so these verses, they aren't intended to blindly ignore circumstances that, that might lead someone to consider something like abortion. Of course not. But they should inform how we think about and respond to such a thing. You know, so often we, we allow projected outcomes and, and outside circumstances to determine our thoughts and our actions. But if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we need to let what God clearly states in his word inform those things instead. We have to be in that place. And so when it comes to the sanctity of life and the, the polarizing topic that is something like abortion, it may be a politicized issue. It may be something that politics would seek to weaponize and use for a campaign, but it's not a political issue. As we see here, clearly, it is a biblical issue. But I, but I do have to say, again, I don't say this with, without a desire to be sensitive to those who have gotten this wrong for those perhaps who have believed the wrong thing. If you have gotten this wrong in the past, if you have believed the wrong thing, there is grace and forgiveness for you in Jesus. And we don't say that is not intended to be lip service. We believe that, and here's why. There is no sin that is more powerful than the cross. No sin that is more powerful than the cross. And where we have erred, where we have made mistakes, where we have believed the wrong thing, there's always a chance to repent and agree with God that this was wrong, but then go the other direction and say, but God, I know that you, through Jesus, you, you cover that sin and you will no longer hold this against me. In fact, somehow, some way, I don't understand it, you will use this for my good, and for your glory. We believe that this morning. What this also means is that just as this was personal for David, it's, it's personal for us too. You see, God didn't just personally form and know David in and before the womb. You and I were also created intentionally by God. If you are here this morning, if you are listening to this either right now at home or you're listening to this at a, at a future time, 
The reality is, God numbered this day for you in eternity past. That means that we have an inherent purpose and value that cannot be taken away by anything outside of him. There's nothing outside of him that can give us value and purpose. It cannot be taken away because he has given it to us before the foundation of the earth. This fact actually leads David to to say an expression of worship in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. What he is saying is, God, I love your thoughts. I love your works. Verse 14, he says, wonderful are your works. Here he says, how precious to me are your thoughts. David is saying, God, I worship all of what you do. I worship your thoughts. I worship all of who you are. Which does make it all the more curious as to why David goes where he goes next. Look with me in verse 19. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak evil, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Okay. (laughs) Uh, David here, it might seem like a random, abrupt change of direction. Again, I would remind you that David had many enemies. People were seeking to take his life. And so as he's worshiping God for all that he is, what he's doing here, it isn't declaring personal vengeance on his enemies. He's actually declaring personal allegiance with God. And what David is doing here is he's showing us that God is worthy of our hearts. And he's demonstrating it in two ways at the end of this psalm. The first is simply, God, because I know who you are, I am with you. Your enemies are my enemies. And this actually stems from a place of worship, not personal vengeance, When he says that he hates those who hate God, he's not referring to hate as an emotion like we would often think of or drum up ourselves, but rejection. He says, God, I reject those who reject you. And he's refusing to align himself with the enemies of God. He says, I will not partner with them. God alone is worthy of his allegiance, his submission, and his heart. But David also has great self-awareness because if you're going to declare something like this and like the way that he does, it needs to be done with a pure motive. And this is what leads him to, to this prayer in the final two verses, two of my favorite verses in all of scripture. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. He says, search me, know me, examine me, then he goes on, he says, try me and know my thoughts. The word try here means to test. Yes, David is actually saying, God, I want you to test me. Not in any type of arrogant way, but in a way that aligns with what we would understand in the New Testament, the way that it's used, that when metals are being refined, they're being tested. And what's happening is during its testing, oftentimes under fire, The impurities in that metal are being pulled out in that testing so that what is left afterward is something purer and stronger than what there was there before. David's saying, God, purify me. 
Test me. Know my thoughts. Not just my thoughts in general. Yes, God knows that, but he's saying, God, you know my anxious thoughts. You know my cares. Know them. And he says, what you find in me and see if there be any grievous way in me. God, what you find, identify and root it out and lead me in the way everlasting. God, when you find these things in me, don't hold it against me, but lead me, correct me, grow me, test me. And what I love about how he ends is that it's how he began with just a slight difference. How does he begin this psalm? He says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Past tense. David, we've already, we've already gotten past this point. God knows him. And the thing is, God does not need permission to search him. He's already done it. Same thing is true for us. God doesn't need our permission to examine our hearts. David acknowledges that, and yet he still says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Again, this isn't David being arrogant. He's saying, God, you've already searched me. And guess what? I have no desire to resist that. I, in fact, I embrace it. I don't want this to be something that you are doing in me, but I am resistant to. This is a, this is a proclamation, a declaration of humility saying, God, you have, you have searched me, but man, do it more. Know my heart, search me. And what you find, purify me. Make me more like you. The follower of Jesus can pray this same prayer with complete confidence and trust that God will rightly handle what he finds in us. We believe, Romans 8, 1, that says that there's, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that when God searches us and finds sin, because we still deal with sin in this life, he, he won't simply point it out and leave us in that place feeling shame. He no longer holds the sin that he finds against us because Jesus has paid for it. But because his will for us is our spiritual maturity, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, and this is the will of God, your sanctification, your spiritual growth, your spiritual maturity. Because that is his will, he will work in our lives to root that sin out, not for our harm, but for our good. Maybe you've heard this phrase before, but it's, it's true that, that God loves us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. It's because God's will for us is that we would grow spiritually. We can pray the same prayer because God's worthy of our hearts. And because as we navigate this life, we make decisions, we do things, we want to humbly submit our plans and motives to him, knowing our hearts tend to wander. So, if it isn't obvious from everything that we've seen this morning, God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives for everything that we do. He is everywhere that we are. And he intentionally created us with inherent value and purpose. So I'll ask the question one more time. Does knowing all of this about God bring us to a place of worship, of comfort, of peace? Or does it scare us? If you're a follower of Jesus, it should bring us to a place that it brings David to, and that's worship. We embrace that God knows everything about us and pray like David does at the end, asking God to search us, to know us, to test us, and refine us because he is worthy of our hearts. But if this scares us, 
or if it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable, we need to be willing to ask why. I mean, at the very least, it might indicate that, that you don't understand God's character quite yet. Maybe you don't, you don't know him quite as well as you ought to. Right? You're not sure that you can fully trust that he's good and will handle what he knows about you well. Maybe you do have a relationship with him, but it's just not the greatest. Maybe you, maybe you have some work to do. Or perhaps this is an indication that you don't have a relationship with him at all. Maybe that you don't know Jesus. And if that is you, I want to be very clear. God still knows every single thing about you. But the way that he knows you is very different than the way that he knows the follower of Jesus. One is an intimate, personal relationship that is based in the forgiveness of sin while the other is the absence of both. God no longer holds what he knows about the follower of Jesus against the follower of Jesus because he has paid for their sin once and for all on the cross. But for the one whose sin isn't paid for, he will hold accountable for what he finds. Because the reality is this, all sin must be paid for. All sin must be paid for either on the cross or in an eternity separated from him. And if this is you, the good news is that you don't need to remain in that place. You don't need to stay there. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say I'm not a sinner, well then we're calling God a liar because he tells us otherwise. But verse nine, he says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we would humbly acknowledge our sin before God, knowing that it separates us from him and that we can do nothing about it ourselves, and we say, but God, you paid it all. Jesus died for me on the cross and he rose three days later. I believe in that because that's the covering. I can't do this myself. I'm gonna humbly acknowledge that now, that you have done this for me. Through Jesus, we can be known by God in a completely different way, a way that gives us an otherworldly peace, otherworldly forgiveness, and otherworldly purpose. Wherever you are at this morning, why don't we take the time to pray what David prays in these last two verses? Why don't we do the very thing that he is doing and that's examining his own heart? Why don't we examine our hearts? So here in a moment, I'm gonna ask that, that each of us, similar to, to what Connor led us through at the beginning, like we, just between us and the Lord and the silence of your hearts, maybe for you it's as easy as reading these words off the, the page. If you're like, man, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say. Davis, David gave us the words. You might actually say, God, search me and know my heart. I know you've already searched me. You've already known me, but I'm asking you, search me again. Test me. I know that's scary. Try me and know my thoughts. God, you know my cares, but refine me and what you find in me. See if there be any grievous way in me. God, see what's the wickedness in me. Would you root that out and lead me according to your goodness and your faithfulness? Would you lead me to be more and more like you? Maybe you'll pray something exactly like that. 
wherever you're at, let's take a few moments and just, just pray and ask the Lord to examine our hearts. Let's do that now. Lord, you have searched us and you have known us. What's true about David is true about each and every one of us. You do not need our permission to know us. Yet, Lord, we desire to be like David in humility and, and not resist the fact that you are all-knowing, that you are ever-present, that you are ever, that you are all-powerful. We don't want to resist these things. We want to embrace them. So God, we collectively, we pray, search us, know us, try us, know our thoughts. And Lord, for those of us that, that are maybe afraid of what you will find, would you bring us great peace and comfort in reminding us that for those of us who have given it all to Jesus, that, that what you find, you will not hold against us because you held it against him and that we can trust because of your goodness and because of your faithfulness that you will take what you find and you will root it out of us, not to harm us, but for our good to make us more and more like you. God, we, may we be marked with humility. And Lord, the, whatever it is that we, that we find, what you reveal in us, may it not cause us to feel shame and guilt, being reminded that Christ bore our sin and shame. May it actually lead us to a place of freedom and to a place of worship, just as it does David. And we ask that that would be true of us even now as we continue on in our worship. May what we've heard be something that compels us to respond. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.